Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Uh, it is one of the shortest re uh, readings ever. Uh, if you want to have it open, it's Philippians 4, verses 1 to 3, but there'll be uh, some slides come up as well uh, with the passage on at various points. Raise your hand if you have ever had a disagreement with anybody. Some of you didn't raise your hand. I can't believe that. Maybe it's stuck down or something. Anyway, okay, hands down. Raise your hand if you have had a disagreement with anybody. It doesn't need to be somebody you've had, got a relationship with. It could be like Donald Trump or somebody. If you've had uh, a disagreement with somebody this week, if you have disagreed with somebody this week, could be a politician, a journalist, whatever. Okay, quite a lot of us. Some of us are people of peace. I can just see that. Okay, um, this morning, raise your hand if you disagreed with anybody this morning. Okay, brilliant. I am, um, well, it's not brilliant, but well done uh, for putting your hand up. Uh, I just put hands down. I, I disagreed with my son when he came to me at 7.25 this morning and said, Mom, can I have my Xbox controller? And I said, no. And he disagreed with me and I disagreed with him. We were at odds with each other about whether he should have his Xbox controller at 7.25, but I said no and I won. Disagreements. Uh, disagreements are pretty commonplace, aren't they, in all our lives. Uh, they even actually happen, I know this is going to be hard for you uh, to believe, on the staff team at P's and G's. Uh, I'm sure you all imagine us living in peace and harmony at all times, which we do most of the time. But I have really enjoyed getting to know Paul over the last six months that he has uh, been on the clergy team here at, at P's and G's. But as I've got to know him, even though we do get on really well, he's very funny, he amuses me a lot, we found something that we really disagree on. It isn't as important as, say, uh, the virgin birth or the resurrection of Jesus, but in my mind, it's quite an important thing. Uh, we both get pretty passionate about tattoos. Tattoos. Paul loves his tattoos, you might have noticed, um, and I really, really don't like tattoos. I, I just don't like the fact that they're permanent and that you can't get rid of them. I don't mind piercings, that's all right. If you've got piercings, you can take them out and they can heal up. But tattoos, I don't like the permanence of them. I'm really seriously concerned for the mental health of our nation in about 40 years' time when all the 21-year-olds who have covered themselves in tattoos, especially in prominent places, then go into this like decline and spiral of re regret about all their tattoos, and then we have another mental health crisis on our hands. I think that's my prophecy uh, for today. Um, but I have a bit of an issue with tattoos. Um, but Paul Sorry loves tattoos. He loves it. It's something that we disagree on. Uh, now, imagine the situation. 
Imagine the situation where this little disagreement between uh, Paul and I has snowballed out of control. And uh, it's become such an issue between us uh, that we have fallen out with each other big style. This hasn't happened. I said imagine just before you get concerned about us. Uh, imagine that we have fallen out with each other big style. Um, and it has had massive repercussions on the staff team. Uh, I, um, I gather all the people on this side who hate tattoos and Paul has over here all the people that love tattoos like Josh Gilbert um, and Jess uh, as well. They can all show you their tattoos afterwards if you want to. But actually, it's become such an issue uh, that it is affecting our leadership and our ministry here at P's and G's to the point where one day Dave steps in. And he gets up here in this very spot in church and he calls us out for our conflict. Uh, imagine Dave standing here saying, Paul, Libby, you've got to stop this. Uh, you are my co-workers for Christ here in this church. And you need to get back on the same page. You know, this conflict is causing problems all over the place. You know, I love working with you guys. You guys are the best people I have ever worked with in my whole life. He's nodding, he's shaking his head. Um, but, Paul, Libby, you need to sort out this disagreement. And he turns to you, the church, and he says, you need to help them get back on track for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. An imaginary scenario. But this is basically what is happening, it's got nothing to do with tattoos, at the beginning of Paul's fourth letter to the church in Philippi. If we look at the passage upon the screen, Paul begins this last part of his letter by telling the Christians in Philippi how much he loves them. He says, you whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown. Paul, I imagine, is sat in jail. I don't imagine he's got a table and a chair. I think he's probably on the floor. He's got something to write with. And he's thinking about his brothers and his sisters in Christ in Philippi. And I, and I imagine as he, he thinks about them, a smile comes to his face because they are his joy and his crown. He's delighting in his friends. Paul is so proud of them. He loves them. He longs to be with them. Uh, they fill him with joy as he thinks about them. In his eyes, they are winners. And that's why he says that you are my joy and my crown. He imagines them getting their heavenly crown. And so when we get to verse 2 and realize that Paul is calling out a couple of women uh, over something that they've had a disagreement over, he isn't in despair he isn't like disciplining them, getting cross with them, because we know Paul is doing it completely in the context of love. These are people who are special to him, who he rejoices over. Their names, he says, are written in the book of life. So the two women are Eudia, or Euodia, depending on how you pronounce the Greek. If anybody wants to tell me how to do that, that's great. Uh, Yodia and Syntyche. 
And this is the only time we hear about these two women uh, in the New Testament. Uh, I feel a bit sorry for them, actually, that they are only remembered for the fact that they had a disagreement, that they'd fallen out with each other. Can you imagine if that was your legacy, that one day, you know, you'd fallen out with somebody and that's what you were known as forevermore in a day. But we also discover something else about Yodia and Syntyche. Not only have they disagreed with each other and fallen out, but they are co-workers with Paul. They have labored at his side. They are fellow workers for the gospel. These women are not Paul's assistants or helpers, who, uh, or maybe uh, they're hel- helpers that back up the male leadership of the church. There's no indication of that at all. It's clear that they have worked side by side with Paul in the cause of the gospel in the church in Philippi. They are church leaders of this church. And it appears that they have fallen out, with some, uh, out about something. Probably not something as insignificant as whether we believe in tattoos or right or wrong, but neither does it seem to be anything as fundamental uh, as the doctrines of the gospel. It's more likely that they've had some sort of personality clash, a disagreement, and it's started to fester, and it's become bigger for them. And because these two women are central uh, to the life and the ministry of the church in Philippi, This deep disagreement seems to have started to have repercussions. And so Paul is calling them out. He's saying, get it sorted. Be of one mind, he says. As we saw at the beginning, we're all familiar uh, with this experience of disagreeing with each other. And fundamentally, disagreements are not wrong. They can be good, can't they? We all have differing views on all sorts of uh, different topics. Uh, We all have different opinions on things. And we can disagree in a healthy way, in a way uh, that has purpose as well. But sometimes that disagreement isn't resolved. And it can fester and it can snowball and it can get bigger. Just look at these beautiful uh, seed pods on the screen. Uh, Does anybody know uh, what plant they are from? Anybody bold to shout out with a guess? Doesn't matter if you get it wrong. Go on, Elise wants to have a sycamore. No, but they look similar to it. I think they're a bit more 3D than sycamore uh, ones, but they're similar. Okay, these seed pods are from the Japanese knotweed. Who's heard of Japanese knotweed? Okay, if you've ever read one of those, what they're called, home reports uh, from a house, you will find out whether your house has any Japanese knotweed in its garden. Because Japanese knotweed has been named as one of the world's most invasive species of plants. If you don't root it out at its earliest stage, once it's established, its roots can cause immense damage. Uh, This is a picture of some Japanese knotweed that's been cut down, and you can just see there how it's pulled up those paving slabs underneath. Uh, It it destroys concrete foundations. It it can pull down buildings. It it destroys flood defences and roads and pavements, and it quickly forms into this really dense colony uh, uh, that crowds out native species. Disagreements in themselves aren't dangerous. 
They often start out small and insignificant, though, don't they? And if they're not worked through, if they're not forgiven, if they're not reconciled, they can fester, they can snowball, they can get out of control, they can start to cause destruction. I think I've mentioned before about how uh, once my granddad lived on the, about two streets away from me uh, when I was a teenager, and I got on really well with my granddad, and we used to go for walks together. And one day we were walking on some streets uh, in my area, and my granddad happened to mention uh, that, oh, cousin so-and-so lives there. And I was like, I've never heard of this cousin before. Who's this cousin granddad? And he said, oh, that's, uh, oh, I fell out with her years ago. And, um, and I said, well, what did you fall out over? And he said, oh, I can't even remember. I don't know whether he could remember, he just didn't want to tell me, or whether he really couldn't remember. But he had fallen out with this cousin, I think she might have been called Eunice, uh, years and years before. And it had become so massive, the whole relationship had broken down. We all know that disagreements that are not worked through that are not forgiven and reconciled can cause huge damage and disunity. And the church is not exempt from this. In fact, Satan always is delighted to discover those little unresolved conflicts in our relationships. And I think one of the lies that he plants in our minds about those little disagreements is that it's okay to not be reconciled to other people in his church. But it really isn't okay. It's, in fact, at odds with all that it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because, firstly, as a church, as Christians, we're called to live out the love and forgiveness and reconciliation that we ourselves have experienced in Christ Jesus. It's at the heart of what it means uh, for us to be a church of grace, to be whole life disciples. And secondly, uh, in church, relationships are not disposable. They're not disposable anywhere. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're the family of God. And the church is made stronger by people coming together and seeking unity in Christ. 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 17 and 18 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you hear that? We have been first reconciled to God through Christ Jesus' work on the cross. And now we have the ministry of reconciliation. God is calling his world to be reconciled to himself. And we are the bearers of that good news. And it is great news for the world that we live in today. That there is forgiveness, there is reconciliation, there is unity. And we as a church need to be demonstrating it and living it out everywhere we go. There is power in reconciliation. There is power in unity. And so the devil is always looking for those little divisions. 
those little cracks that appear between people, little disagreements over theology or worship or people's roles over what so-and-so did or didn't say, which he can wheedle his way into and then exploit. And that is because he knows there is nothing, nothing on this earth more powerful than the church living out forgiveness and reconciliation and peace. And there is nothing more destructive to God's mission through the church than unresolved conflicts, which grow and breed resentment, that breed disunity, and eventually can cause terminal damage uh, to relationships between people. And in some cases, can cause damage to the whole mission of a church and a community. And some of you might have experienced this yourself in the past, perhaps in churches that you've been involved in. You know firsthand the hurt and the damage uh, that can come from unresolved conflicts or unforgiveness between people in the church. And this is Paul's concern uh, here in Philippians 4. He doesn't want this disagreement between Judea and Syntyche to get out of control and become a, a terminal problem for his church. And so he says to the person he addresses as my true companion, he says, help these women. They need help. They can't do it on their own. They're not resolving this conflict on their own. They need your help. If you and I have an issue with somebody, uh, we need to resolve it. But sometimes we really struggle to do that. We really struggle to do that, whether it's just... um, finding the words or the opportunity. So we need help from outside. We need somebody to come in and and we need to ask for their wisdom and their insight into the situation. Or even ask somebody to mediate between you and the other person you're having a disagreement with. Because sometimes in the midst of disagreements, in the midst of all the hurt and the unforgiveness, we need somebody else to just come into the situation and listen and to identify the real issue in all the muddle that comes with disagreement and give us the tools to bring healing and forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, Those of us who were here uh, having a training session yesterday looked at this uh, beautiful drawing by Charlie Mackesy. And it reminds us that sometimes the bravest thing we can do is ask for help. Sometimes the bravest thing we can do is ask for help. Again, if that would help you in your situation at the moment, do contact uh, our P's and G's counselling service or even one of the clergy. Um, We'd love to help you. Some of us, though, need to deal with our own hearts first. Some of us need to deal with our own hearts first. Uh, During recent times, one of the most destructive and deadly weapons that's been used in war have been landmines or IEDs. Uh, And these devices are hidden all over the place, uh, and once triggered, they explode with devastating consequences. For some of us, there are places in our hearts, in our lives, that are like landmines. Places that most of the time remain hidden. Places that we never like to touch or acknowledge are there. Or perhaps we don't even realize that they're there. But these places can be so filled with anger or jealousy or bitterness 
or hurt. That when something or somebody inadvertently touches them, steps on them, they explode. And the effect on them and us and maybe other people around can be hugely destructive. And so some of us need to deal with the landmines in our hearts. And that will take real courage to patiently and lovingly dig up those landmines and expose them and disarm them. Some of us may need the help of others uh, to do that. A close Christian friend, a mentor, a counsellor. For some of us, the hardest person to forgive is actually ourself. And for those of us in that place, we need to know that we are worthy of forgiveness. We need to know that we are worthy of even forgiving ourselves. And we need to know that there is freedom on the other side. If we're whole life disciples of Jesus, At the heart of our lives, individually and together as a church, there has to be the giving and receiving of forgiveness. Often in my house, I don't know what yours is like, I come across a couple of my children. Sounds like I have an army. I only have three. But I come across a couple of my children uh, fighting over them. And I say to them, say sorry to your brother or sister. And they respond with these words. But they started it, Mum. We can all fall into that trap, can't we, of saying this is a reason not to forgive and to be reconciled to somebody. They started it. Or it's not my fault, so why should I say sorry? Or how many times do we put conditions on the forgiveness that we will offer? I'll forgive them because they apologized. Or I'll forgive you if you promise you will never do it again. Or I'll forgive you, and I'll go on forgiving you, and I'll forgive you until we get to that point where you do it again, and I will not forgive you. I forgive you, but I know I'm right and you're wrong, so if you ever do it again, I will remind you of that. We need to learn what true forgiveness is. Jesus' disciple, Peter, uh, famously wrestles with this issue uh, when he comes to Jesus in Matthew 18 and says, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who has sinned against me? Seven times? Uh, Knowing Peter a little bit, not personally, but from the Bible, um, I think that actually what's happened in this situation is that he has forgiven somebody seven times and he's been keeping a little tally uh, of the number of times he's forgiven them and he goes up to Jesus and he's like, How many times should I forgive my brother or sister? Seven times? Because I have, as you know. And shockingly, Jesus says no. Forgive not seven times, but 77 times. Forgive and forgive and forgive and go on forgiving. Ephesians 4, verse 32, Paul reminds us of this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. That's why we have to go on forgiving, because Christ forgave us, and his forgiveness goes on and on and on. And so we are called to be imitators of Christ, to give of ourselves, to be kind and compassionate to one another, to forgive each other just as Christ has forgiven us. 
If we are following the way of Christ, we forgive fully and completely again and again and again. And that is really hard. It's not easy. It is a struggle for some of us every day to do that. Every single one of us who are sat in this room this morning can think of a time, think of a situation when we've had to forgive somebody and it was so hard to do it. We might be in that time at the moment. Lots of us might be thinking of people in our workplaces or in our families or friendship groups or involved in our children's schools that we need to forgive and we're really struggling to forgive them at the moment. I've just asked uh, Tiffany if she'd come and share a story uh, with us. Uh, I just asked her to share simply a story of a time where um, she was called to forgive. Yes. She's on number three. I I had just moved to London. I had been living in Ukraine for six years, so I was single. I um, didn't really know very many people, and as you know, London is a hard place to make friends. Um, And so I came into my workplace, and there was a girl who sat, we were in this open plan department for marketing, and she sat right across from me. So we looked at each other every day. She was my age, we got on really well. She's from France, I'll call her Mary. Um, And Mary and I struck up a friendship, or so I thought. We would go out to lunch, she would show me London, she would help me look for flats to rent, and we had a good relationship. I was open with her uh, because, A, I'm American, and I hadn't learned British reservedness yet. Um, But I was open with her about who I was, my faith, how that influenced decisions for me. And so we had a good, you know, good relationship. Fast forward several months. I came back from a business trip, came into the office. She asked me how it went, and I knew I had to get something done because I hadn't been away. I'd been away. And I just said, it was good. Thank you. And I got to work. The next thing I know, I'm interrupted in my focus by two, my other colleague who speaks French, and her just screaming at the top of her lungs in French, grabbing her coat, grabbing her bag, and running out of the office. And I was like, oh, what's happened? Is she okay? Did she get a call from someone? And it proceeded, colleague after colleague started to tell me how much this woman thought I hated her, And she had been going around to everyone, telling them I was awful to her. I did, you know, I had done all this stuff. Um, And she also had told them all about some of the more personal, kind of intimate things that I had told her in a friendship context. I was shocked. I was confused. I. I was embarrassed because all of a sudden all of my colleagues know about things that I didn't expect they would know about. And, and then that quickly turned to anger. Anger at, you know, how can you accuse me of all this you know, unwarranted stuff? I had never had a relationship like that at work before. I've never experienced it since. And um, she refused to come back to the office. It turns out she was telling everyone, she had spoken to management saying, I cannot work with her, I will never come back to the office again. And so I, we left it a few days. Um, I did call her at one point that day and just said, hey, can you just come back and we can talk about this? But she refused. But she eventually did. And I knew everyone in that office, because she had told them, knew I was a Christian now. So they would be watching. 
And I, I did have to turn to friends um, outside um, who were Christians and really ask for their prayer, for their support. So I set up a meeting and I sat her down and I told her, I'm really sorry if I ever gave the impression that I hated you or that something was going on. I said, I do not know, I don't understand, but I am sorry and I would love us to be able to work together. Um, she accepted that. Um, she didn't apologize, but that was, you know, her choice. Mm -hmm. And we proceeded to have to sit across from each other, let's say, for ne the next several months. But um, I kept my boundaries up <laughs> a lot more. Um, and she did leave. But about a year later, I was in France on, um, with some other colleagues at a wedding. And the lady who actually replaced her said to me, oh, we were sharing a room. And she goes, if I had believed everything, and this is after the fact, after all this happened, mm -hmm. while she was training her to, for her job, she said, if I had believed everything she said about you, I would have thought you were the biggest bleep, I can't repeat it, in um, church I'd ever met. And she goes, and you're not. And I remember that just kind of mm -hmm. struck a chord again. And I had to go, I'm not going to gossip about this. I'm not going to talk about her. And I just had to let it go. And I realized that was freeing for me to be able to say, I'm not, I'm not going there again. So there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Tiffany. Thank you. I asked Tiffany to share that story because it's not a story of somebody whose child was murdered and they had to go through uh, a time of working out whether they could forgive that person and uh, a sort of dramatic story. But because I asked Tiffany to share that story because it's a story I think probably lots of us can relate to on some level. That actually the giving and the receiving of forgiveness, especially if we've been hurt, is really hard. It is a struggle. It's something we can all relate to. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon says this, to be forgiven is such sweetness that honey is tasteless in comparison with it. But yet there is one thing sweeter still, and that is to forgive. As it is more blessed to give than to receive. So to forgive rises a stage higher in experience than to be forgiven. True forgiveness, it starts with you and I being willing to surrender to Christ, that deep belief that many of us carry that ultimately we are right and you are wrong. True forgiveness starts when we surrender our ambitions, our anger, our jealousy, our bitterness, our politics, everything. It starts with surrendering, surrendering ourselves completely and fully because that is the way of Christ. When we talk here at P's and G's about being a church of grace, a church that feels it's called to deepen its influence in our workplaces, in the church in Scotland, in our families, in public spaces, then it has to look like a people who live out Christ-like forgiveness, who strive for reconciliation, who strive for unity and forgiveness and peace wherever we go. Truly giving and receiving forgiveness is a beautiful thing. Some of, it some of us have experienced that beauty for ourselves. 
Giving and receiving forgiveness is a beautiful thing. It's the way of Christ. It's life transforming and it's kingdom building and it brings reconciliation and unity and peace. And that's what we're called to be as a church in this world.